0: Welcome to A Geography of Colour, a monthly podcast where I talk with a different painter each month about their relationship with colour. I'm also a painter and my name's Ruth Filo. This month I'm talking with Elizabeth Rose Langford. She's a contemporary British painter, currently living and working in Ibiza. She has a BA in English and Philosophy from Nottingham University and a BA Fine Art from City and Guilds of London School of Art. Lizzie's paintings suggest another way of seeing and engaging with the natural world. Her motivations are to draw attention to current global crisis, working with organic matter to discuss unrelenting growth in the name of progress and humanity's consequential dissociation from nature. Since 2013, Lizzie's practice has centered around the inherent systems of natural materials. She spent four years after graduating learning traditional methods of extracting colour from plant and earth matter, which her current practice readdresses in an attempt to reveal something previously overlooked in the sole pursuit of pigment. She manifests these concerns with the action of painting between the site of the pigments and the studio. Lizzie won the Griffin Art Prize in 2013, working collaboratively with Luke Kranswick and undertook a residency with Windsor & Newton in 2014, where she looked into Precipitating Rose matter. Since then, she has had solo shows in London, Ibiza and New York. She's taken part in numerous group shows and undertaken various residencies in Europe, the US and the UK. She's currently working on Red Discover, a research project with Nova University, Lisbon and UCL London. Lizzie is represented by Katrina Phillips in London. My name is Elizabeth Langford. Um,
1: I'm, I would call myself a site responsive painter. Um, and that is because my practice at the moment is about being in a certain place and finding pigments from that place um, and processing them. And when I have them in paint form, um, the next step is to sort of get to know them as paint. So what I've been doing recently is transcribing Renaissance painting, which is a little bit of a cheat in a way, because um, I would like to know more about sacred geometry. Um, But I feel like painters like Rubens and Titian and Poussin, just that, you know, they spent years learning those things. And so by transcribing them, I feel like I'm imbibing some of those things. Um, And so I keep transcribing and transcribing with the pigments until they become something else.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So do the pigments that you're using uh, relate to a... Do you relate those artists to a place then, or...? No,
1: I don't. I, I go quite instinctively with them it just sort of happens as an engagement with something Um, like the most recent one was The Judgment of Paris by Rubens and I think maybe I was relating to that painting on a personal level um, and I didn't really realise it consciously. I think you know there's so much unconscious stuff that happens in painting isn't there?
0: Absolutely.
1: And I was speaking to a friend about it a few days ago and he was saying that it takes him two years sometimes to really look at a painting that he's done Mm. and to understand it in any kind of way because I think When you've just done it, I I don't know what it's about yet. And there is so much impulsive
0: decision-making, I think. Yes, it's kind of a blend, isn't it, of conscious and unconscious. Um, Yes, definitely. um, It takes you a while to assimilate that, I think, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. I think sometimes I'm very much in the unconscious, and something I really want to work on in my practice is the um, reflection part, because I'm very... I like to do I'm very physical and so I, I make a lot of bad work and then maybe only a few will be successful I'd like to try and sort of hone that process a bit or sort of
0: but that, that, that's quite quite good really in a way because you're willing to take the risks aren't you and it's by doing that that you kind of stretching your work and magic happens
1: I think that's the thing because I'm always scared of not going far enough that's what scares me of holding back so I'll normally go too far <laughs> but there's the odd painting where it like gets it works it's sort of and the editing process I'd like to that's something that I intend that I would like to get better at and I think this thing of like my practice at the moment I really like to say that and mean it because I feel like I want my practice to be something roomy enough to live in and something that I can that can change I don't want to always just do what I'm doing So actually, Tim from PADA introduced his practice in that way. He said, my current practice. And it just really, I thought, wow, that's just such freedom to give yourself that.
0: Yes. My current practice. I think it's a journey, isn't it? We've got to be prepared to move and change. What do you think has happened to your practice over the years so far? Oh, I think I came to painting...
1: Well, I'd always painted, but I did my degree a bit later because I did um, English and Philosophy at Nottingham First and then I um, studied uh, worked in the NHS for a while. Um, and then I went to City and Guilds and I was so excited to finally be at art school. But my engagement with art was quite... I mean, I would probably call it superficial. Like, I hadn't really... I loved painting. That was like my... It was an escapism, but I didn't really... I didn't really know how to look at painting. And I sort of I loved the pre-Raphaelites and stuff like that. I was just sort of quite super as I say, superficial. And then my tutor, Jasper Joffe, um, sort of <laughs> I would say he like deprogrammed me. Or he I think what happens at art school for me was I felt like I got broken apart and then I had to, with the help of some of the tutors, put myself back together. Which sounds very violent as I say it, but I think it needed to happen. Anyway, I remember him getting me to look at Philip Goston. And I had a really strong reaction to it. I thought it was disgusting. Like, I hated it. And I just couldn't understand how anyone could like it. And I was sort of annoyed. I don't know, I just, I felt, I think it's because I didn't understand it. So that was the later work
0: rather
1: than the work. Yeah, the, the later um, work. And then he showed me the early work. And then I went, well, that's lovely. And then he, he sort of showed me the journey of how Guston had got to Guston. And then I started to understand and it was like, okay. And now, actually, I find it hard not to like something at that point I was really into the abstract expressionists that was my sort of because I felt like and painting was a bit of an exorcism for me it felt like an exorcism I really identified with this idea of the canvas as an arena in which to act I found that really exciting Mm -hmm. Um, and the edges as just sort of of suggestions rather than an edge there Mm -hmm. was a I found that quite yeah as I say exciting and then I started working with my then partner Um, and his father is a renaissance professor in pigments so we joined our practices together um, and he taught me all about pigments and we had this residency with the griffin art prize i think that's when i first came across your work what's his name luke cranswick the way that we were taught or the way that way that he introduced me to the pigments was in quite was in a very traditional sense and there are so many rules around pigment making which is fine, and which is kind of how it has to be because it is very precise. But I felt like there was something in those processes that got overlooked in the sole pursuit of pigment. Some of the processes, like especially for plant pigments, they're so exciting.
0: I think when I saw you, or saw your work, um, you were precipitating Ray's Madder. Oh, yeah, yeah. The... Making the installation.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that was us sort of trying to get into the process more. But now I think I'm really trying to dissect the processes more to see what's available in those. And yeah, that's what my And now,
0: now you seem to have made the link with the actual site. So it's kind of it's all based on where you are. Yes. Um, and a situated practice. For me it
1: makes sense because like I feel like where I am, it's whether I like it or not, it's going to go into the work, isn't it? Your mm. environment goes in and using the pigments and having that process feels very right somehow. Um, I've got this residency coming up in um, New York and I've got this idea. I don't know how possible it would be, but you know the Statue of Liberty is covered in Verdigris.
0: Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I've got this idea. I mean, I don't know if it's possible but of going and scraping a bit off I don't know <laughs> it's oh, probably yeah. absolutely not okay I'm probably not allowed to do that um it would be interesting if you could <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but verdigris takes quite a long time to form so if I can't do that then I'll probably ask somebody to get some copper to set it up hmm. so that it starts growing now so when I get there it'll be on its way to being verdigris so there's a lot of planning with yeah. the pigments and there's lots of like something that I want to start being more mindful of is seasons. Um because with plant pigments there's a lot of like what's in season, what's going to be growing now. Like when um when I was at Pada, the reason I went there was because there was a discovery of crossophora tinctoria, a oh, missing yes. molecule.
0: And can you tell us a bit more about that then?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um so so some chemists in Lisbon, they work at Nova, the Nova Institute they they knew a bit about crossophora tinctoria but not very much and they researched into the like, the molecular structure and they found the missing link in it which enabled them to understand a bit more about why it lasts so long because normally plant pigments are really fugitive but crossophora tinctoria wasn't. It was really, it's just a beautiful colour and you can have it as blue or purple. So I did some work with them and... They showed me this lovely thing. So you, it's like, it's a tiny little, it's like, it looks like a weed um, and it grows on fallow ground. So it's just, it just sort of sprouts up like a weed and it's these tiny little pods and you squeeze them into cotton and then the colour is there. So you just spend a long time in the field doing that. Um, And it comes out purple. And then um, the chemists, they were so funny, they took delight in telling me, that if you suspend it, the cotton, over the urine of a drunk, older man, um, then it turns bright blue. Ah, So I did that at Pada, which was great fun. Um, And the best time to harvest it is in August. So that's when I was harvesting it. But I think July, August, September, it's possible. I want to be more organised with it. And there's also um, the Bermuda Buttercup. Oxalis, which I've been using oh, yeah. in Ibiza, ah. and that's a bright, bright yellow. It's an amazing colour, yeah. but that is quite fugitive. So fugitive means it um, flees the surface, so it doesn't stay
0: the same colour. Yeah, like it changes. You... So the urine was a, a mordant, was it? Sorry. No, yeah. the mordant is what you prepare the fabric
1: with. All oh, right, because right. Um, it comes from the Latin mordere to bite. Oh, right. yeah. um So I try to use natural ones where I can because you can use soy yeah. milk um but yeah it's like i th- i think what it does is it opens the weave of the fabric in a way that it can take the pigment better and mm. it keeps the color more mm. but it's still i mean plant pigments will still tend to change but that's something also as well that i i used to have a bit of trouble with that but now i'm accepting it as part of the journey of that painting and part of what will happen to it
0: that's interesting because um, I mean, people have always been worried about changes in the surface of their work, haven't mm, they? Mm. And um, I mean, even things like watercolors—you know—that you know, that you've, uh, from UV and and things. So, um, interesting that you've, you're that you're taking that on board as part of the process of the life of the painting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of necessary. With natural materials to accept that part of them, mm. and I think sometimes we can overprocess them, and then they lose they lose something about what makes them them. Like sometimes I've seen Madder, for example, Rubia Tinctoria, mm. and it looks nothing like Madder. It's like this almost lumin- luminous pink, which is fine, but it's not for me. That's not Madder. And so I watched this interview with Anselm Kiefer and he was talking about how he just accepts that they will fall off, like that is part of the painting's journey, mm. but then he has a team that comes in and puts paint back on. Oh. So I sort of had a thought about but about revisiting certain works, so about like having sort of a two-year cycle yes. and then going back with the same pigment and just it back on in some way.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Tending your paintings.
1: Exactly. And it's like a nice way of, because I don't know if you've ever had that, you know, when you've sold or you've let go of a work and it, it just feels strange, doesn't it? That they're not there, that they're there. But it, I think it's nice to have that opportunity to visit them.
0: Yes, I think, I think that would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Because they kind of go off and have a new life of their own, but then you'll have an interaction with them.
1: Yeah, I think it would be really nice. Mm. I was really. There was this. um, Is it John Berger? The Death of the Author? I think it's John Berger. It's um, it's an essay. Mm. But it's basically this idea that um, he's saying that once you've made something um, and you let it go into the world, then you no longer have ownership of it, it will have a life of its own. Mm. Um, And I find that really exciting. But then I always feel like, well, I would like to still have some kind of engagement with it. Like, I think I still can. So, yeah.
0: Yes, this would give you that that opportunity, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Would you use colours together? It it sounds like with with your current practice Mm. that it's very related with the soil or the area. Yeah. So do you let the area then completely determine the colours that you use?
1: Mostly, I mean, sometimes I cheat a little bit. Like I'll bring in a pigment. It'll always, I'll, I'll always make the the colors, but I'll bring in a pigment like ultramarine or something that I think because I, I I sometimes feel it needs like a it needs something. It needs yeah yeah. And I don't want to be too purist about the natural materials thing. And it, it's only a small amount of something synthetic that I would use. The the majority of it is natural. But there is a pigment that um, I love, which is Payne's Grey. It's one of my favourite things to work with, just because it's so versatile. In oil, it's just amazing.
0: I was thinking about, uh, you know, whether colour theory was something that was a big thing that you were taught, or... I don't know so much about
1: colour theory. I would like to know more about it, but I think I'm very intuitive with colour, or I try to just go about it in an intuitive way. Yes. and see what feels right. And and I love... I do, like... Um, I did a course... Not a course, but it was, like, there was a symposium at Slade. Oh, yes. In colour.
0: Yeah. Did you see it? I can't remember what it was called. Uh, yeah, it was at the Painting and Poetry. Yes, it was yes. lovely. Did, yes. you, did you go to it? it? I've been to a couple of them online. Mm.
1: Yeah. I really enjoyed it. And there was this... Um, a painter. And he just had his palette on glass, and he... it, it the whole course was just him mixing and you watching how many colours could come from this colour and him with the greys, him muting the greys. And I love that. I think that's just, that's something Albers does really beautifully, isn't it? The greys. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting going through those questions that you sent and Mm. thinking about those things because I think it made me realise how much of the practice is instinctive and is actually out of my control because I think a lot of it is just down to what's available. Then there's the part where I do start to take control, where I go, well, I want to put this colour in, Mm. the synthetic colour, and that comes from me, Um, which is interesting as I say it, because it's kind of like the unnatural
0: part comes from me. (laughs) Um, You've just had an exhibition, been part of an exhibition in London, haven't
1: you? Oh, yeah, Synergy, that was lovely. I made some works on traditional gesso panel. Oh, yes. which is a lovely mm-hmm. surface to work on. It's chalk and rabbit skin glue, and it's like 11 or 12 coats. And so it has this kind of ceramic quality. And um, for that, I used hematite and yellow ochre from Ibiza. Ah.
0: And
1: then I was painting, um, you know Walter Bin, Bin I mean? mm-hmm. Um So he was actually on Ibiza for a while, and he loved this island called Saconiera, which is in it's you can see it from San Antonio, which is now the party bit. Mm. <laughs> um but uh, he loved looking at this island. Um and one of my favourite essays is the work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Um and so I made these paintings as like a little homage to him, um yeah. with the yellow ochre. And they're all they're of Saconiera. Um so that was the work that was in synergy.
0: Oh, right. Yeah.
1: yeah. So That's... for that, I was using quite light colours, actually, because um, the yellow ochre is quite, quite a bright
0: yellow. So you went and collected the ochre. Oh,
1: yeah. I collected the ochre from a site from which you could see Sacconiera, which yeah. felt quite important. Yeah. You know, when you make, in your practice, you make these rules for yourself. Yes. Which are just essential. It's like, of course I have to do that. It has to be, the ochre has to be collected from a place where I can see Sacconiera. Yes. And when you say it out loud, it's mad, but you sort of follow your own madness and it like you make it into a rule that you have to do it like that.
0: Yes, it gives you a structure, I suppose, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, mm.
1: yeah. So that was, that was how those works came about. Um, for the residency that's coming up in New York, I want to... Um, because they give you a room in this hotel. Oh, yeah. Um, and the idea is you make, like, a mural or something in the room. And um, I was at some friend's house a friend's house the other week and they've um they've painted the walls with natural pigments so with like a lime wash Mm -hmm. and then pigments um and I just thought that was so lovely to like have on the walls something natural because it is going to be going into your environment isn't it like it just will yeah it's like Napoleon with the wallpaper he that was a toxic thing in his environment and if you can have a natural thing in your environment I think that's so exciting so I'm going to do that with the walls and then I don't know I'm really going to just like let it come quite naturally because I think sometimes I get very like with the rules Yes. I get a bit like oh no I have to do it like that and at the moment because I'm doing this thing with the transcriptions I'm really like no I have to do my transcriptions before I can do what I want to do and so I think when I get to this residency I'm just going to be really like let it happen and just sort of you know, with, I don't know, just like, I'm going to make some charcoal from some trees, from from, from some wood that I find in New York. Mm. And then I'll, I don't know, just let myself sketch on the walls and see what happens. So I'm quite excited about it's, that. Yeah,
0: it does sound exciting. Yeah, <laughs> I think it'll be nice.
1: And, well, obviously sourcing, yeah, everything will be sourced from somewhere in, in
0: the state of New York. So that will be... That yeah, would be that's... That's quite a rule, isn't it? Quite a big rule for Yeah. The, for the project.
1: I do think like, there is... Because you need... I don't know. I have a funny relationship with rules. And I've noticed I've said rules so many times. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's... Yeah. And I've always had this thing when I was at art school. I, was, I really wanted to know the rules. Like, what's good, what's bad. And I wanted to know technique. That was such an important thing to me. I was really caught up on that. Really? I was yeah. really... A, Because I I felt the lack of it, not in art schools, but I felt felt my lack of it. Mm. And I felt like I respect it in other people's work. And it was just something I wanted to understand. And it was something that I noticed tutors were not very keen on, this Mm. word, technique. And I was always a bit um, confused about that. But now I can see why, because I do think a technique, once you have it, it's hard to let go of it. Yes. And it's hard to find your way when you have a technique.
0: Yes, when you're get, getting it sort of superimposed from somebody else. Yes. Probably the uh, art education is about you finding your technique. That doesn't mean to say that sh- people shouldn't teach you different kinds of techniques. But no. um But there's a way of teaching, I think. I just,
1: Yeah. It's, I think teaching is an amazing thing and really mm. difficult, I think, to do it well. Mm. I have so much respect for the tutors, because if they did show you something, they would... You have to do it in such a way where it's not imposing, don't you? Yes. Where it's yeah. a suggestion.
0: Yeah. And well, I, I think, what I, well, the feeling that I got was with art school, all rules are there to be broken, maybe. Yeah. If you want to break them. So,
1: yes. And I think that's with the pigment making, coming back to that, mm. that is the invitation for me, mm. is how to break the rules.
0: Yes, because you said it was quite a traditional way of learning about pigment. Yes. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah. Well, when we were at Windsor & Newton, um, or when we had the residency
1: with Windsor & Newton, mm. the old factory was in Harrow and & Wealdstone and that was where they made madder. Oh, yes. So they mm. had all these amazing images. And so when we were there, we were using, we were processing madder. And we were doing it the way that David had shown us to do it. So that was the traditional way, which I think is quite close to George Field's method. I suppose the way I was taught was in a Renaissance way. I suppose it was find the pigment. And it depends whether it's earth or mineral or plant. Everything gets processed differently. Yes. I don't know how necessary it is for it to be so obvious that they are natural pigments, because that's something people often ask me. They're like, oh, but do you think people will know that they're natural pigments? So that's mm-hmm. like... Um, I did um, a residency in Portugal and it was in these vineyards. Oh, yeah. And it was lovely. And um, it was at the end of the season. And so all the grapes had been harvested. But they use machinery now. Yes. So a lot of grapes were left on the vines. And so I was going around the grapeyards and just... Or the vineyards, sorry. And checking... they're just looking at the colour of them and like squeezing it into canvas and seeing what happened and um, one of the grapes was this this incredibly like very rich colour and there were quite a few of them left so I ended up just working with the grapes and the earth in the vineyard and doing this sort of ritual with myself I suppose um, of like gathering the grapes and then dancing them into the into so it the canvas. Sa- sounds quite performative. Yeah, yeah, I think there's always been that edge of it. And again, it's this iceberg thing and wondering how much of that to reveal and whether I do want to reveal any of that. With my work, it's like, what is the work? What part of it is the work? I want it to be the canvas, but sometimes I think there are other things to explore and maybe to invite into the practice. I just think the process, or my process, is very transient yeah And it like sometimes it'll be about one part of it, and there's always an outcome, and I think I would always call myself a painter, because I think that's where I find myself is in paintings. Yes. But what leads up to the painting can be various things. And I do think the thing that I was always drawn to with the abstract expressionists was this thing of the gesture and the yes. body and like this thing of feeling, because I think that is kind of what they were doing. For me, mm. anyway, it was just this overwhelming sense of feeling and immediacy
0: which and, is and your work has that in, doesn't it? It's very um it's got kind of a spontaneity mm. um, and as you say, gesture. Mm. wondering about the application of the paint, sometimes with brushes, sometimes
1: with hands. The paintings I was mentioning now, the backer, I call them the backer's paintings, bacchanalia. Mm. Um, that was with my feet, so I was like dancing them into the canvas, and actually that was a really that was quite exciting for me that body of work because um, I realised that the environment that the work is in is really important. The work obviously is a work in its own sense, but that it started to become more about installation and about an immediacy that can come with that as well. I oh, I remember there, we had this amazing lecture once and it was about moments, the moments in painting. So there was like the significant moment and then there's the moment before the significant moment and the moment after the significant moment. And the significant moment, I suppose for me, that would probably be abstract expressionism because there is like an explosiveness. Yeah. It's like immediate. You feel it. Uh, when you start working on an installation basis, then you can start to explore time in a different way. Which I got really excited about in this recent residency.
0: Yeah, I think that whole relationship with the space of the work and the space. Yes, i l- looking at your work. Um, you know that, that seems to be increasingly important. Mm-hmm. So situating the you know, like the the pe- the the outcomes within the site of where they're made. Yeah, uh, it's. Um, Um, You know, it's got a richness to it that if you took the work away from there and put it in a white space gallery, you lose something, don't you? I think
1: people either feel things in terms of contrast or harmony. Mm. And I'm definitely a contrast person. Like, I need it to be extreme. So it's like orange-blue. Not so good at the close... Like, harmony I see is, like, red and orange. That's harmony. Yes, yeah. Um, But so in that sense, I do quite like the idea of something being taken like the, the the work being made and it being so uh, connected with a place, and then it going somewhere else, but it's keep it keeping its its itness.
0: Yes, its identity. Identity. Yeah. That's a better word than itness. Sorry. <laughs> <It's all> fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, and you've got a little piece of somewhere, somewhere else. Yeah, and actually, in a way, that's starting to happen
1: with with the collection of pigments. Because inevitably, I'll go somewhere and I'll make the pigment, gather the pigment, make some work, but there's always surplus. And then I have this thing where I'm like, oh, because it takes you so long to make it, and so you feel really attached to it. Um, Like, I've still got a whole sheet of the Grosophora. And um, so it's in my studio on this shelf. And I'll sort of look at it sometimes and think, I don't know how to... But I, I think the thing is to just start... Start treating it more like a palette, maybe. Yes. And occasionally be like... So, so not be so rigorous about this thing of it comes from the place where it's made. That I can start actually being like, oh well, I do have this purple that I found in Portugal, and that would work really well.
0: Yes. In this and context, and you've, you've got you've got this geography of color, haven't you? That mm. of different places, you can think about it. I mean, if you look at Turner's work when he was travelling around Europe, you can see how his palette alters according to where he was. Yeah. So that's kind of a quite a rich element to painting, isn't it? Yeah, that's true.
1: I was listening to this lovely thing about Turner the other day. Apparently, he was using like cream and butter and stuff in oh, his really? paints at one point, and everyone would say he's going mad. He's put <laughs> cream in the painting. I thought he's. I mean, it's so. I love thinking about painters like him in terms of because it, when you think about them in context, like when he was making those paintings Mm. because now they're just beautiful to us aren't they and we just Mm. think oh wow how lovely but then it was really he was really people thought he was mad often Mm. didn't they Mm. and like it wasn't accepted the way that we accepted yes
0: we're looking with hindsight really aren't we yeah
1: Yeah, and maybe if he was alive now he'd be doing something digital or he wouldn't be I wonder what he would be doing
0: yeah that would be interesting
1: maybe he'd be like a James Turrell sort of light installations I think he might be doing that.
0: Mm.
1: I don't know. <laughs> I love James Terrell. Yeah, He knows his work. Yes, I do. Yeah, I love him too. Mm. I went to see it, um, it was years ago, at Pace Gallery. Do you remember oh, when yeah. he did that? Yeah. And it was just so convincing mm. that you could step yes. into it. And I remember there was a wall and I was trying, I was really like, I love that, that thing where there's that, what's it called, suspension of disbelief when you're really, it, it's just, you're caught in that thing of like, is it real? Yeah. I think the real is something I'm really curious about in a practice. Yes. yes. That, like and 'cause maybe a practice is about grappling with reality and what is your reality and is is there a universal reality or is it just an objective or subjective or you know, it's I read um I've been reading Zadie Smith a lot recently. Oh yeah. And mm. there's a lovely lecture where she talks about her relationship to the real. Yes. And how essential it is to what she does. And she said a lovely thing about um, if you're always authentically real, then you'll always be quite strange. And that's very interesting in itself, which I thought was... Yeah. And I've been watching um, Tarkovsky, Andrey Tarkovsky. Yes, I do. And listening to what he says about... Because I think he was... I might be wrong now, but I remember people talking about him... As surrealist, and he said, "No, it's not surreal. It's mm. real, it, or it's magical realism. Because if you look at any moment in any detail, it's completely surreal." So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's interesting because I mean, there's such a physicality to your work, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, which mm. you know, that's a real. You've got that huge connection with place, and you've got that feeling of touch or gesture. Mm, haven't you? Um, is, is the scale of the work um, important? Because you seem to work on different, quite a lot of different scales.
1: Yeah, again, <laughs> contrast. It's either small or really big. <laughs> um, I think like for the pieces that happen in the landscape, because sometimes I make them in the landscape, um, I like them to be really big because then I think they've got more chance to record. Mm. And then they do become sort of color field almost. And then, like, with the with the grape piece, with the Bacchus paintings, they became very... Because it was, like, the purple from the grapes and the earth. It was lovely, actually, because the purple from the grapes was on the surface and then the earth was sticking to the back. Oh. So there was this sort of smell as well. And mm. a friend saw them and she said she grew up in France and she said it reminded her so much of the season when they're picking because it was the same smell.
0: Oh, that's and I loved
1: that. I was <laughs> like, yes, that's really... So it's a
0: painting that's appealing to... More than the usual census. Yeah, yeah. What about binders? What kind of binders do you use? Um, gum Arabic a lot. Mm. I use rabbit skin glue,
1: um, linseed oil. I, I mean, I do lots of just sort of mixing and putting things together, like a bit of honey or mm. whatever. I want to start egg tempera. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's something that I was talking about recently with a friend. And mm. yeah, I would really that. Although I think it will be quite challenging because it's very transparent, apparently.
0: You, uh, you can see every mark that you make. Oh, I love that! Really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that would be nice. Mm-hmm. So it's not very forgiving. No. Well, mm-hmm. uh, I've only I've only, haven't done much of it, but I did a media and techniques course many years ago as oh. part of my art history. Oh, lovely! I made egg tempera. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Okay. So do you go back to the old handbooks like Cennino Cennini? Um, the one I've got is Max Derner. Oh, yeah.
1: The materials of the mm. artist. Mm. And that's great. It's got sort of... I think Cianini's the one with the lapis, isn't he? He's got yes. the, the recipe for lapis. Oh. I've actually never done lapis. Oh. Um, mm. I don't know. I think I was always a bit scared. Because <laughs> it's really hard, isn't it? It's the hardest yes. one to... I, yeah, no, I've never used lapis. Um, and we were talking earlier about blue, weren't we? About yes. this sort of complicated yes. relationship with blue. Um, because yep. it's actually not necessarily something that people want apparently it's not a color that uh,
0: as um gallerists yeah we we're it's, talking about galler- some some gallerists not particularly thinking that blue paintings are popular yeah but but you were saying that you're quite fascinated with blue
1: yes i think it's i mean it's a really difficult color to find in nature
0: hmm.
1: the only, i've worked with chrysocolla before which is a mineral and that is quite that that's like a turquoise blue um but dark blue i mean indigo but you think of like picasso's blue period i suppose blue has a sombre quality i don't think it's uplifting necessarily but then i think it depends the tone of blue because like turquoise i think it's sort of
0: is it cold do you think i think you can get cold blues and warm blues can't you
1: but as a color i think i would Say it's more cold than it is warm. Like red, I would always say warm. Yellow, warm.
0: Hmm. Purple, probably warm.
1: But I feel like blue. Blue is—it's a funny color, isn't it? It's really.
0: It is, and it's got such a history, hasn't it? From sort of medieval times, with being specified for the Virgin's robes. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and, and that I think is also the value of the pigment, isn't it? The yeah. connections with the lapis lazuli.
1: Yes, and wasn't there loads of like control about how it was used? As I remember, when I was uh, looking at the Titians, somebody came and spoke to me about it and said that. Um, but I, I remember there being something that you could only use it for certain things. It was quite, yes. yeah. It was quite important. Yes, how it was used,
0: and similarly with gold.
1: Oh, you know, yeah. Those,
0: because they were the most important, uh, the most expensive parts of the painting I think they were specified the different elements yeah I've never done much with gold
1: leaf it's no. not something that's sort of I don't know I feel like it's once it's on a surface it's it's so loud I used to have a phobia of muddy paint for example oh, right. like when I worked more with oils yes I was so I just the idea of muddy paint I hated it yeah. I found it so stressful and then my tutor said make 10 muddy paintings then. So, like, do the thing that you're already scared of doing. Yeah. And then it's not so scary anymore. Did that work? Yeah. I wasn't so scared. And then it was like, I was scared of ugly paintings. So he said, make 10 ugly paintings. (laughs) And then they became not ugly anymore. It's so funny, isn't it? Like, beauty in work or in painting or whatever, it's so objective. It's not a language that makes sense to me in art.
0: No, no. in art making. I, I, I understand what you mean. It's a bit like what you were saying about Philip Guston. Yes. Yeah. I wondered if there are any colours that you're drawn to.
1: Because of this thing of the site-specific thing, I don't really feel like I have much agency within that. Like, I don't think I have so much freedom to choose. But when mm. I do have freedom to choose, um, I love red oxides. Oh, yes. Transparent red oxides, mm. I really love.
0: What What is it that you love about them? I don't know. <laughs> I think... Mm, I'm trying to sort of think into it, feel into it. And um, do you use them with other colours? Or,
1: uh, yeah, you, yeah, It's Payne's Grey. Mm. Transparent red oxide and Payne's Grey, I think, is a really... I'd love that com- combination. I think it's colours that have a fleshiness. For me, for some reason, I think it's... And maybe it's because I'm thinking of a particular mixture of it, which is with oil, and then it's... Because actually the, the physicality of the paint is really important for me, like how buttery it is or how malleable it is or
0: yes so it's it's physical properties
1: yes yeah and then the color is part of that as well and I think the red oxide it's I like how it can be really meaty but then really transparent and the same with paints Gray I think Paints Gray is just lovely have you painted with it yes it's, yeah. it's,
0: I do use it yeah
1: it has its oiliness mm. which I really I suppose like maybe so in terms of I think I like colors oily ones like sort of dark and oily <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> yeah it's it's interesting to say it out loud because I don't normally think and I I mean I always do love madder as well because I think in terms of a pink it's a really exciting pink because I don't I'm not really a pink person mm. but it's got this sort of meatiness to it it doesn't feel like a delicate pink it feels like quite a, a tough pink yeah and I like that about it
0: I wondered if you had any early colour memories
1: Yes, um, when I was very little of being put in the garden um with an easel and some red paint, some red oil paint and you know a canvas and an easel yeah. and um my dad left me to paint. And when he came back, I'd taken off all my clothes and painted myself red. <laughs> 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 Which must have been quite frightening. I was really little. <laughs> <Just getting> really... <laughs> she
0: with oil paint. I know. It had
1: to be washed with white spirit. I remember that. <laughs> It sounds a bit strange, but I used to love rolling in mud as a child. I did, That was yeah. something I just, it was my ultimate treat. And I don't know if that was because I knew it displeased my mother, so it was like an obvious rebellion. But I knew I also, re- I loved the feeling of it. I just felt such freedom. Yeah. Sure. And then a friend recently pointed me in the direction of, um, it's called Challenging Mud. It was in the 50s. And I was I found that really appealing in many ways because I have this sort of aversion to being explicit about any kind of political agenda or persuasion in my work and that's why this um, work was suggested to me because it is sort of apolitical this wrestling with mud he's just Mm. it it's sort of about something else and and the material and him and I can see the work sort of going in that direction.
0: Mm. It sounds like the ideal preparation for a painter, really. Your yeah. as a child. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> My poor dad was a oh, horrible child. Um, did, did, did your father paint as well? Yes. I,
1: yeah. He was, um, he is, he, he paints really beautiful. Mm. I mean, very different. We're very different in mm. how we paint. He paints, like, quite precise landscapes. He worked on in insurance, but he um, retired quite early and mm. then he was always painting. And I think that's why I, I liked painting, because he was so passionate about it when I was little. Yeah. And I think children just feed on passion, don't they? That's, that's what they're drawn to. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's probably why I started painting. But I think I just always drew, like I, as a, from a really young age, I was always drawing. Um, and then when I went to art school and we did life drawing, I think I realised that's how I learn things. Mm like that's you know we all have our way of learning don't we like
0: yeah yeah
1: I think drawing is how I understand things
0: I think there's also that time in drawing isn't there that while you're drawing you're looking and you've got time to uh, really appreciate how something's made or what qu- the qualities about it
1: yeah and how like colour and light behave as well for example like that I always think that would like um background and foreground and, like, how you can manipulate it and get something to sit in front of something else. And it just... Everything becomes a metaphor, doesn't it? Yes. When you're in that territory, it's really exciting and strange. And it takes ages sometimes, I think, like, to get into that, like, to get into that way of... That mode of thinking.
0: Yeah. You have to sort
1: of warm up, almost.
0: It it seems that different parts of your practice tap into being physical or the thought processes Mm. Um, so uh, you know some things are quite look quite intuitive and um, you know very connected with place Mm. and yet you have other practices where you're transcribing which are very kind of specific
1: so I think I feel like the transcriptions are a sort of skeleton Mm. that I need because otherwise it would be too formless too much freedom, perhaps. Yeah, that's interesting. It is interesting. It's very interesting to hear what you say, is like just to hear it said like that. And sometimes I worry that it's too dispersed. That there's too many bits to it. It's like we were saying earlier. I think the practice is a journey as well, mm-hmm. and it will change. I, I think there's a point in the making of the paintings, in my paintings, where I'm quite um, unprecious about it. And if things go wrong, then yeah, great. It's like embrace. Or there's 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 a period of time where whatever happens happens like letting go of the control I mean and you hear lots of artists say this but I do think it's like a balance it's like a relinquishing and holding of control Yeah, control is the sort of when to let it go and when to keep it
0: and there's that part of painting when you're in the flow mm. and you you probably don't even you're not really even registering what what you're doing yeah yeah
1: totally it's like this dance with consciousness isn't Mm. it Mm. but that's what I mean I do think that that's like for me at the moment that's at the crux of everything it's like how to how and when to be conscious and how much to relinquish of the consciousness and coming in and
0: out of it yeah and how and when to do that Mm. the reflection when you look back on your paintings when you've made them do they do they surprise you sometimes
1: yeah like definitely this thing of the two-year period, what this friend mentioned, that he can't look at his paintings for two years. Mm. He can't really see them properly for two years um, because it takes that amount of time for him to be able to really see what he was doing. Because once you've made, when you've just made it, you're sort of this close to it, aren't you? It's like you're you're so close. Yeah. And as time goes on, I suppose you become further away from it. And Mm. I know Howard Hodgkin used to take years between marks didn't he sometimes yes, he would yeah. just turn the work around and then start uh, come, approach it again a few years later which seems so brave to me because sometimes I just look at a painting I made years ago and I think oh my god it's, ugh, it's so <laughs> embarrassing or it's, like, it's so dramatic or like I was a completely different
0: person and it sometimes feels so hard to get back into a painting when it's old doesn't
1: it yeah like how do you reapproach? It? I think you just have to I don't know that would my approach would just be do it just be really like I can't think too much because then I don't thinking can disable me sometimes I think overthinking Mm. I'm just in the studio at the moment I've got these um, I did like these watercolours of sea just of rhythms in the sea Mm. Um, and I knew that they were just beginnings but I didn't know how to proceed with them so I just put them in a folder and now I've got them out again Um, and I've got some pigments that I found where I am at the moment that I made and so I'm I've just got them in the studio I'm looking at them a lot and being like waiting for it to be the thing yes some of the works I've made I see them almost almost like stages waiting for the characters to enter oh
0: right yeah
1: so now I want to go with the characters with my version of whatever characters might be Um, that seems to be the the thing that's happening next Mm.
0: in the studio oh that sounds exciting yeah
1: (laughs) It's so weird talking about a practice, isn't it? It's just like, it can sound so bizarre.
0: It is, and sometimes I think it's only by talking that we actually begin to realise what we are thinking or what it's yeah. about. Sometimes if someone asks me to say something about a piece of work and or talk with them about it, mm-hmm. it's only then that I actually understand what the work is all about.
1: Yes, definitely, I agree. And to have somebody see
0: things in another way as well. I was wondering about, you know, that communication of colour, which, without us really talking about it, you know, do you feel, do you get that feeling about colour communicating, having its own language that yeah, it acts on us viscerally? Yes, definitely. I guess with the natural pigments,
1: thinking about that in the context of my work, mm. I suppose, yeah, like, I think colour has such a profound bodily effect. Like, yeah. when you see it, like, um, the Backer's paintings, for example, with that red and it's like the energy of that red is always going to be explosive. That, But that tone of red, because there's other reds,
0: mm. it's... Yeah, I think colours so... colours so powerful. I wondered if there are any colours that you stay clear of.
1: I think... I was scared about working with black because I feel like once it's on the picture plane, it's, it's so dominant mm. and I don't know how to balance it. And so to counteract that, I started working with a lot of... Like, I've been doing charcoal, a lot oh, of charcoal recently. Yeah. Um, and I made a bone black oh, yes. and that made a really lovely colour. So I've been working with that recently. But so I think my approach, if I'm worried about something is to try and do it, or trying to, to see why.
0: What's... Sounds a good a good, way, good way through. Yeah. And there's so many blacks as well, aren't there? Yeah, it's... Um, it's, you know, velvety blacks, um, grey blacks, mm. brown blacks. Yeah, well, the bone black came out quite brown. Mm. It had a
1: sort of... I mean, I thought... I mean, I've never worked with mummy black. Mummy black's from mummies, from mm. the bones of mummies. Mm. Um But I imagined it might, it sort of looked how I imagine a mummy black would look. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, so I guess, I'm just trying to think about this colour question, because it's really, it's a really good question, and it's really like, I mean, there's just so much, isn't there, with colour, it's such, it's so vast, it's like, Uh and I suppose it's our language as artists, like, that is our language as painters. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It's. It's it one is of the colour. most powerful
0: things that we, tools that we have in our toolbox really. It
1: is yeah, it's like it's the tool. It well it's I mean, when I think of like how we receive information, it's probably colour is the first thing you'd recognise, isn't it? And then it would be like texture, but then the texture makes up the colour,
0: doesn't it? I think particularly in abstract painting, it's a, a huge a huge power which um maybe, you know, partly we're conscious of but partly we're not so conscious
1: yeah definitely I think I, I suppose again with this instinctive intuitive thing because you know it's like being just instinctively drawn like pain spray drawn to it I, I think I'm really instinctive with colour when yeah. I can be obviously yeah. there's moments with, the, with my practice at the moment it's like the landscape dictates the colour so I have to sort of go with that when I do make choices it's instinctive and this thing, the thing, one of the lovely things about the natural pigments is that the particles are all different sizes. Oh, yeah. So the way that they reflect light is really different. So it like the surface has this sort of aliveness to it. So the way that the color appears, it's like you're never. It's not going to be uniform. No. It's going to have so many, and I love that. I really that really excites me. That thing of. surface having like not being uniform I think uniform surfaces are really alarming yes
0: (laughs) yes it kind of has its own life through through those elements yeah it's like and you know
1: like looking through a canopy of leaves or something and that sort of the sun coming through yeah it has something of that for for me
0: yeah
1: like the thing with colour
0: well, thanks very much, Lizzie. This has been oh. such a fascinating in- interview. Pleasure. and um, I've really enjoyed hearing about your relationship with colour. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk. Thanks to Lizzie for such a fascinating insight into her relationship to colour. I'd also like to thank Stuart Bowditch for editing the podcast, Arts Council England for supporting it through a Develop Your Creative Practice grant, and contemporary British painting, an artist-led organisation that I'm a member of for helping to publicise it. Thank you for listening. A Geography of Colour is a monthly podcast with a new painter each month talking about their relationship with colour. Do follow it in your podcast player and share with your friends. You can follow a Geography of Colour and Elizabeth Rose Langford on Instagram. You will also find Contemporary British Painting there at Paint Britain. And if you go onto their website, you can sign up to their monthly newsletter to receive news.